Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Our sermon text for this morning is Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me say uh, there are Bibles on the table just outside the door, so you can feel free to grab one of those uh, from outside the door. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to grab one for the service, but to keep it. Uh, write your name in the front, take it with you, uh, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Please pray with me before we re read Galatians 1. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you for your love. Uh, we thank you for the cross and for the forgiveness of sins that we have there. We thank you for your word, Father, that you have not left us uh, alone without a word from you, but you have given us the scriptures that we might know you, that we might hear from you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide my words, uh, that I would speak what is true. And we recognize, Father, that whatever I say, it will be powerless, empty, apart from the work of your Spirit in our hearts, bringing your word to bear on us, renewing our hearts that we would believe and hear what hear and believe, and transforming us by your word that we would reflect your image more fully. Father, pour out your Spirit on us right now uh, that we would hear and believe and draw near to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Well, this week I saw a cartoon uh, that had a picture of a fish on one side, and on the other side was a hook with a sign on it that said, Free Lip Piercing. There was another cartoon uh, of, a, of a mouse with a picture of a piece of cheese sitting, of course, on a mouse trap with a sign that said, free lunch. And uh, you, you get the common theme, maybe. These are things that are too good to be true. You probably know the saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And yet, as we come to the gospel, I, I think when we hear the gospel, 
The gospel sounds too good to be true. Uh, The gospel is that God loves you and God forgives you, not because of anything you do or don't do, but because of what Jesus did. Um, That that in order to have all your sins wiped away, to be freed from sin's enslaving power, uh, you only need to put your trust in Jesus and not in self. Well, very often in life, when people sin against us, uh, we make them work for their forgiveness. We hold grudges. We expect people to make things right. We hold small faults over people's heads for long stretches of time. We believe in justice, we say. And and that's good. Uh, The good news, actually, the good news of the gospel is only good news once we come to understand that, that God believes in justice too. In fact, Abraham, way back in the book of Genesis, calls God the just judge of all the earth. God is just. God is holy, the scriptures tell us. He is not like us. He's the creator, not a creature. He is sinless and not sinful. God, in the Old Testament, he set up an elaborate system of rituals. Israel, his chosen people, could only come before God through that system, through that elaborate system of rituals. Those rituals required Israel to be Uh, ritually cleansed and atoned for and anointed. The guilt of sin had to be removed. Uh, The uncleanness of sin had to be removed. They had to be anointed, that is set apart for communion with their God. So as you look at the Old Testament, you ask the question, well, how can God dwell in the midst of a sinful, broken people? The answer is it's not easy. It required a certain way of life, a certain obedience to the ceremonial and the moral law so that communion with God, so that intimacy would be possible. And this, I think, is really the default of all of our hearts. We know if I'm going to be close to God, I need to perform. I need to live up. I need to attain a certain level of righteousness or religious behavior or in my religious life. But then, uh, during the middle of the first century, Paul comes along. And Paul begins preaching that there is actually nothing you can do. That all your religious behavior doesn't get you anywhere. That all your obedience is tainted with selfishness and self-righteousness. And so even the best deeds, even the greatest works, do not earn you the right to stand in the Father's presence. But, Paul teaches, Jesus has come to to live a life pleasing to the Father, to bear our sin in the cross, to rise from the dead as one who has the Father's approval. And Paul teaches that if we simply trust in Jesus, if if we believe in his saving work on our behalf, God will receive us to himself. No level of law obedience, no level of religiosity, no level of cultural conformity necessary. In fact, Paul teaches the point of the Old Testament law was not you have to jump through the hoops to get to God. The point of the whole Old Testament law was to point us forward to Jesus and to his saving work. Now, Paul came along preaching this, and for some in the first century, it was really good news, right? That meant I can get off the religious treadmill and know that the Father loves me, the Father receives me, the Father delights in me. Not because of anything I have done, not because of anything I am doing, not because of anything I will do, but only because of Jesus. 
But for others, this was kind of disturbing. For Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus, Paul's preaching was, was destroying their culture, destroying their religion, which meant that at least certain Jewish people in Paul's day began to persecute Christians, Christian people. In fact, Paul had been one of them which meant that there were some Christian people in Paul's day, right, who began to think, okay, well, well why don't we just keep the law and believe in Jesus, right? It's kind of a win-win. Uh, Jesus and the law and everybody's happy. But there was Paul to deal with. And so these Christians began to go to Paul's churches and to say that Paul had gotten the gospel, gotten the good news of Jesus wrong. On the one hand, they said Paul got it secondhand from the apostles in Jerusalem. And then not only did he get it secondhand, but he actually left certain parts out. He left the law out to make it more palatable, to make it more acceptable. In essence, they were saying, you know, Paul's law for ye gospel, that's just too good to be true. Don't believe it. There's actually a subtle way that we do the same thing. When we sin and then punish ourselves, right, rather than receiving God's forgiveness right away through repentance and faith, uh, when other people sin against us and we make them wait for forgiveness, make them prove their sorrow through, through penance, when we judge ourselves or condemn ourselves or judge and condemn others, especially when we do that based on criteria and distinctions in the world, right, education or race or economic status or theology, you know, sometimes we look down on people because they're socially awkward or smelly or just plain weird. What are we saying when we judge ourselves or others in that way? What we're saying is your righteousness, your acceptability is not in Jesus, but in some worldly attainment. I will accept you if you can jump through my typically culturally defined hoops, then I'll accept you. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul defends his gospel, his good news. He defends the good news that he taught, that our acceptance with God, our righteousness, our right standing before him is, is found in Jesus alone. In effect, he, he says, Jesus may sound too good to be true, but he's not. In fact, Jesus is as good as he sounds. Paul defends this not, not actually by arguing uh, for the content of his gospel. He, he, doesn't, he hasn't gotten into the message of the gospel yet in detail. He will. He hasn't gotten into that yet in detail. But he's arguing for the v validity of his gospel in other ways. And so we, we see in our text Paul argues that his gospel is revealed by God, that it's confirmed by men, and that it's demonstrated in Paul himself. You can see that's the outline in your bulletin if you uh, would like to follow along with the outline. It's on the back of your bulletin. Paul's gospel is revealed by God, confirmed by men, and demonstrated in Paul. First, Paul's gospel is revealed by God. He asserts this in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul starts uh, out right away uh, in this text saying, look, my gospel is not secondhand. It came directly from Jesus. And, and Paul is picking up on themes, you may remember from, from verse 1, his uh, apostleship, that is his authority to represent Christ, rests not on men, but on divine intervention. 
the risen Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. We read about that in Acts 9 a little bit earlier. Paul had received his gospel straight from the lips of the risen Lord. Now, you, you might be skeptical, maybe understandably so, but there were clues in Paul's life which bear witness to this fact. Uh, first, you have Paul's previous persecution. Look at verse 13. Paul says, For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul hated Christianity. Paul once saw Christianity as, as a distortion of Judaism. And so he persecuted Christians. He arrested them. He stoned them. He killed them. But verse 23 tells us that the churches of Judea heard that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And here is Paul, a persecutor turned preacher. What happened? How did that change take place? Second, there's Paul's previous zeal. Uh, look at verse 14. Paul goes on, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the trans traditions of my fathers. Paul, Paul's zeal was for the traditions, we're told. For that, that is, for the law and all the traditions that were built up around the law. He loved the law. He loved the traditions. How did Paul go from being zealous for the law to saying it was unnecessary for salvation? What caused this change in Paul? This was not a natural progression of Paul's thinking. This was a radical break. How did that radical break happen? Paul didn't just sit in his bedroom and come to these conclusions. Nor did Paul have a dialogue with the Christians that he was killing and become convinced that he was wrong. No, the risen Christ met him and gave him the gospel. Now, Paul is making a very specific point here. He's saying his gospel is not through men. His gospel came directly from the risen Jesus. But actually, there's something similar, at least analogous, to what happened to Paul that must happen to us as well. You know, we all need to hear the gospel. That's one thing. But we also need God to break into our hearts. Except that rather than doing this through direct appearance, a direct appearance of the risen Jesus... Today, God does this through men and women who share the gospel with their neighbors and co-workers, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit who transforms our hearts and turns us away from ourselves and to our Father. And so let me ask you, right, have you heard this gospel? Do you know it? Has God broken through your hardness of heart so that you believe it? And if the answer to any one of those questions is no, well, stick around, because hopefully you'll hear it. <laughs> And two, pray. Pray for God's Spirit. You know, Jesus said God would not withhold His Spirit from those who ask Him. So you can pray to that end. Paul's gospel was revealed by God uniquely on the Damascus road. Paul's gospel was not received from the apostles in Jerusalem. That's what Paul says in verses 15 to 22. When God was pleased in his timing to reveal Jesus to Paul, Paul's response was not to go consult with the others to make sure he had it right. Nor did he, he go to Jerusalem to check things out with the apostles. But he went to Arabia. Now, we're not entirely sure what Paul did while he was in Arabia. Possibly he went there to spend some time relatively alone. 
searching the scriptures, seeking to reinterpret everything he had ever thought of in light of what he now believed about Jesus, right? That would be no insignificant thing. Everything you've ever learned is now uh, reinterpreted in light of the risen Jesus. But he went to Arabia, then he went back to Damascus, and eventually, three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem, he met with Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and he was there for 15 days, he says. The only other apostle he saw while he was there was James, the, the brother of Jesus, and then he left. Why, why does Paul record those details? His point here is that he was never discipled by the Jerusalem apostles, right? He, he was never trained by them in the gospel. He, he saw only two of them for a period of 15 days, and that was three years into his Christian life. His gospel was not secondhand, and he got it directly from Jesus. And, and think about Paul's message, right? It, it has to be from God and not from men, right? I mean, we, we always judge people by human standards. That's all we've got, after all. And so we always judge people by human standards. We judge people by what they can accomplish, by what they can be, by what they do, by what they say, by what they create in life. We judge people by their attainments. But Paul's message says no worldly activity can get you anywhere with the Father. Only Jesus can do that. Now, this doesn't make most of us happy because we have standards after all. And we, we like to think that our standards make us righteous. Our standards make us acceptable. Of course, this doesn't make the rest of us happy because it's religiously exclusive. And so this is a message that doesn't really satisfy moral conservatives on the one hand or religious liberals on the other. Right? Nobody likes this message. It's not about what you do. It's about Jesus. Who could think this stuff up? Not Paul. Paul's point is he had no secondhand gospel. He received it as a revelation from Jesus himself. Therefore, it, it couldn't be lightly dismissed. Now, not only was his gospel revealed by God, but it was also confirmed by men. You see this in verses 22 to 23. Verses, uh, verse 22 says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What this means is that the churches that were once persecuted by Paul, the churches where he took people out of them and, and put them to death for believing in Jesus, where he put some of them in jail, these now recognized Paul's gospel as true. He was preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And this is important for Paul's argument. He's saying, look, I didn't receive my gospel from Jerusalem, but the Judeans recognized my gospel as true. What I was preaching was the very thing I once tried to destroy. And what this means is Paul is preaching, again, the same gospel the Judean Christians held in contrast to uh, the Judaizers, right? You remember uh, that's the name that was given to those who opposed Paul, wanted to enforce the Jewish law. The Judaizers opposed Paul's gospel, but the Judeans, they recognized it as true. In fact, they even go further than that in verse 24. We're told in verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. See, the churches that Paul once persecuted now are glorifying God because of him. The Judean Christians, rather than correct Paul, they, they thanked God for him. And so Paul's gospel, revealed by God, was recognized as true by men. It's, it is actually important to realize Paul's not trying to be a maverick. 
right? He, he's not trying to be outside of, of sort of the Christian tradition of his day. You know, sometimes people today, good intentioned people, kind of ignore uh, all of Christian history, Christian tradition, and they focus on the Bible alone. And, and sometimes they appeal to the Reformation for that idea. Hear me out. Uh, that's actually an, an invalid appropriation of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. Uh, the intention of Paul uh, was not to reject all other Christian thought, but to accept as valid only what he had received on the Damascus Road. That's not his point. Uh, no, but the Damascus Road gospel became the sole norm, sole standard by which all other things were judged. Right? So the gospel is the standard for evaluating everything else. And the same was true during the time of the Reformation. Scripture alone didn't mean we scrap all of Christian history and tradition. The Reformers studied well everything that came before them. But Scripture alone meant that we judge Christian history and tradition by Scripture. We don't scrap it, right, but we refine it. We reform it according to what the Scriptures teach. And so Paul is saying, look, I, 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 he's not saying, I stand alone here. I alone have the truth. But he is saying everything must be judged by this gospel, the gospel that I received on the Damascus Road. And we need to be in the same place, right, where we judge everything by the gospel. We judge everything by Scripture. But if you find yourself reading something out of Scripture, right, that no one else has ever seen. You ever been reading the Bible and you, and you suddenly you, you, you think about a passage and you think, I think I understand this passage in a way nobody has ever understood it before. Guess what that means? It means you're wrong. <laughs> right? That's a pretty good indication that, that, you're, that you're misunderstanding the passage. Right? We don't look at, at to history and tradition as the source of truth. That's true. The Bible is the sole source, source of truth. But we do look for it to it for confirmation that we're on the right track. Paul himself didn't need such confirmation, of course, because he received his gospel directly from the risen Jesus. And yet, nevertheless, people confirmed it as they heard it. They validated it as true. So Paul's gospel is revealed by God on the Damascus Road. It's confirmed by those around him who had first received the gospel from the other apostles. And Paul's gospel is demonstrated in Paul. This can actually be put in a simple statement, right? God's grace to Paul was according to God's pleasure and not Paul's activity. Right? God's grace to Paul was according to God's pleasure, not Paul's activity. So look at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles and so on. What did God reveal to, to uh, why did God reveal Jesus to Paul? according to those verses. Was it because of something Paul had done? Was it because Paul first chose Jesus? Was it because Paul had kept the law? No. It was because God was pleased to do so. That's what the text says. When God was pleased. God was pleased to show His grace, according to verse 15. You know, Paul at one point in 1 Corinthians says, I am the least of all the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle, apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You know, Paul knew his persecution of the church made him unworthy to be an apostle. 
But he goes on in 1 Corinthians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. In fact, elsewhere, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 3, he says uh, he's the least of all the saints, not just the least of all the apostles. Finally, in 1 Timothy, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul clearly knew he, he didn't deserve God's grace. His religion didn't earn him God's favor. But his rebelliousness didn't keep him from it either. Paul's gospel was demonstrated in Paul because with all of his religion, though he went further than anyone else in his religious zeal, with all his religion, he still couldn't earn God's favor. But with all his sin, persecuting the church, killing Christians, his sin did not keep him from God's favor either. How about you? Right? Do, do, do you think God should love you because... Do you think, on the other hand, that God can't love you because... What if I were to say to you that God loves people not because of what they do or because of what they have not done. God loves people because of his mere good pleasure. Which means his love is not dependent upon us, but dependent upon his own gracious character. Though we may, we may, we may do well one day and then the next day do poorly, God's character does not change. His character does not fluctuate. And so his grace to Paul and God's grace to us is according to his good pleasure, which does not change. God's grace to Paul, of course, was not only according to his good pleasure, but it was also before Paul was even born. That's what verse 15 says. Again, verse 15, but when he who set me apart before I was born. Right? And of course, that just emphasizes the fact that God's plan to reveal Christ to Paul God's plan to forgive him, God's plan to call Paul to preach grace to sinners, God's plan was not dependent on Paul. God made the plan. He set Paul apart before Paul was even born, which meant that before Paul had done anything good or bad, God chose him that he would be a witness to God's grace in Jesus. And Paul actually says this about Jacob and Esau. You may know in Romans chapter 9, by implication, uh, he says it about all people, that, that when, you, when you come to faith in Jesus, you can look back and in retrospect, you can see that, that you, were, you chose God only because he first chose you. Uh, he did that before you were born or had done anything good or bad. And what that means is if his choosing you was independent of your good or bad behavior then no good or bad behavior can make him change his mind. This is, it's the doctrine of election, right? And it's sometimes put in a very controversial way, but it's not meant to stop people from coming to Christ. It's meant to give people who know Christ confidence that if you know Christ, it's, it's not because you were exceptionally good or exceptionally bad. It's not because you were exceptionally smart to figure this out. It's not because you were exceptionally spiritual. If you know Christ, it is because God chose you from the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless in him. That's what Ephesians 1 says. This from a God who does not change his mind. And God's grace to us is according to his good pleasure before we were even born. In fact, before the foundations of the world. And God's grace to Paul came through God's call in God, in Paul. God's grace to Paul came through God's call in God's timing. Again, verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was even born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. 
God had set Paul apart before he was born, but God didn't call Paul to himself until decades later. Why was that? Was it because, uh, was it that Paul was fighting against God, refusing to give in to what he knew to be true? Maybe so. Was it that Paul had not heard the full gospel message until that particular time on the Damascus Road? Maybe so. But whatever the secondary reasons are, ultimately, the reason is that even time is according to God's good pleasure. So that, that sentence in verses 15 and 16 can be simplified as, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me. When God was pleased. See, the timing was in God's hands. And here's what that means. Here's what that means for us, right? If you came to, uh, became a Christian later in life, you might be kicking yourself thinking, look at all that time I wasted, right? I, I was sharing this in the uh, new members class this morning. I often think about that. I didn't become a Christian until, well, until I was 18, which doesn't seem like that late in life anymore. But uh, at the time, right, I had wasted my whole, you know, uh, uh, my whole uh, high school and middle school, my whole life before that, rebelling against Jesus. And so if you became a Christian later in life, right, you might be kicking yourself thinking, look at all the time I wasted, chasing after the things of this world instead of growing closer to Christ. Okay, that, that, that may be true, but stop kicking yourself. Right? It was in God's timing. That was his timing. He was sovereign over that, not you. It also means if you have a friend or a relative who you've been sharing the gospel with and you've been praying for and, and you're getting discouraged, frustrated, maybe even angry with them, but they won't just believe it, right? Why won't they do that? Well, relax. God is in control. I mean, yes, keep praying. Yes, keep showing and sharing God's grace with them, but trust in God's timing. There's not a moment in history that does not fit into his plan. There's not a moment in your past that does not fit into God's plan. There's not a moment in the past of your friends and family that does not fit into his plan. God is at work showing his grace to his people in his time. Now, for some of you, right, you, you might be thinking about your past and thinking that was part of God's plan. You might even start to get upset, uh, angry that God would allow such things to happen to you. And, you know, I, I can't defend uh, what God has allowed in your life. I don't know what God has allowed in your life, but, but I can say this, our God is good. Our God is wise, our God is sovereign, and he will work everything out for your greater good in the end. Now that may not seem possible to you. How can God work that out for my greater good? But of course with God all things are possible. And of course he promises in Romans 9, for those who, uh, in Romans 8, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not all things are good, right? Some things are very bad. But all things will work together for good. And so God, in his wisdom, even redeemed Paul's persecuting of the church. He used that as part of Paul's life as he brought Paul to himself. The context, by the way, of those words in Romans 8 about all things working together for, for good are these words of Paul. Paul says earlier in that chapter, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
See, Paul is actually saying in Romans 8, it's our sufferings, specifically saying. He's not saying just all things generically, specifically saying in context, it's our sufferings that God works out for our good. Paul is a supreme example of the way God's grace works. God, showed his grace to, God shows his grace to us out of his own good pleasure. Our religion doesn't earn us God's favor. Our rebelliousness doesn't keep us from it. God's grace to us begins before we were even born, uh, so it can't be uh, based on anything we do, even our choice, ultimately, to trust in Jesus. And God's grace to us follows God's good timing, right? We can rest that, that everything that takes place is a part of God's wise and good plan and will work out for the good of those who love God in the end, as incomprehensible to us as that might be. That's Paul's gospel, right? Revealed by God, confirmed by men, demonstrated in Paul, that God chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He draws us to himself in time simply because he delights to do so. He delights in showing us his love. And he does that all through Jesus, who came into the world to bear our sin and to rise from the dead, defeating death and hell for us. Is that good to, too good to be true? It sounds like it. But don't doubt it. Just rest in it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good news, the gospel of what Jesus did on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that uh, things didn't start in uh, the first century. Uh, they didn't start... Uh, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, as amazing as that is. They didn't start even with the incarnation, but they started from the foundation of the world. We thank you, Father, that that means we can rest, rest in your love, which is secure because it's according to your character, according to your good pleasure, not according to anything that we might do. Thank you for that, Father. Give us comfort in that thought. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.